Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate newsletter audiocast. I am your host, Dr. M, and this is issue number 24, which corresponds with May 30th of 2022. Today, we're going to touch on topics of infections, snakes, and then a third topic regarding children and what we know about development and nurturing interactions with kids. Let's get started with the free thoughts. Do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. That was said by Ralph Waldo Emerson. I find that to be a very poignant piece of information regarding what many of us really need to do in our lives is find new trails in decision-making and how we can be better versions of ourselves. I know for myself personally, I've been trying to blaze a lot of new trails in the past two years in order to find different ways of being the best version of myself. If you haven't listened to podcast number 21 with Traver Baum, I highly encourage you to. You know, he started a group called Man Uncivilized, and the essence of this organization is to find out what it's like to be a man in modern times, to be in tune with and actually specifically feel all aspects of one's life experiences, to be unapologetic, to be authentic, and above all, to be safe right? We're men. We're, we can be strong. We can be powerful. But are we safe? Are we doing things that are unfortunately causing trauma and pain to people, right? These are really important questions. Men have done some really tough things in the history of mankind with traumas through wars and other things and men returning home from wars and being unsafe in their homes, men returning from work being unsafe. And there's a lot of that. Now, that is not to say that men in themselves are unsafe. It is just behaviors that men may display can be in some way, shape, or form, not very functional within the frame of the family unit or the matrimonial unit. So Traver, who is absolutely 100% a man, has started this organization to discuss what is it like to be the best version of us, where we are in tune with our primal side, as well as our divine side, where we can bring the softness to an or, to a group, as well as the primal nature of the ability to work hard and, and, and build our body strong and all these other things. So for me, the reason I thought Trey would be a great guest was because if men are at their best, they are the safest for their wives and their children, which for me is the most important thing, because then we're providing areas where children and women can thrive and grow, which is how we as a society become our best. So if you haven't listened to the podcast, I highly encourage you to. It is episode number 21, and I'm just, I can't say much anymore about how great of a interviewee he was. Okay, so let's get on to issue number 24. A subset of children may be more susceptible to respiratory infections of viral and bacterial varieties based on some new research. It appears that the microbiomes of the nasal respiratory respiratory tract and host immune defenses play a major role here. If a child has a defective innate or and adaptive immune response, then the pathogen will have a chance to grow rapidly and infect the host well. The immune defenses of an infection prone child are more akin to a newborn than age-matched controls. In the Nature Reviews Microbiology by Mann, M-A-N, in 2019, there's a really great picture showing how this balance can be stable or instable. From an article in the Journal of Infections, Dr. Picicaro noted, dysfunction in innate immune responses that cause an immunopathological impact in the nasopharynx have been discovered, including inadequate pro-inflammatory cytokine response and poor epithelial cell repair. 
adaptive immunity defects in B-cell function, immunologic memory resulting in low levels of antibody to otopathogen-specific antigens, allows repeated infections. CD4 positive and CD8 positive T-cell function and memory defects significantly contribute. From an article in Clinical Infectious Diseases by Ren et al., we see the stringent otitis media children exhibited significantly more acute otitis media episodes per child, nine-fold higher, viral URIs and viral URIs followed by acute otitis media than non-OP children, which stands for non-otitis prone. The otitis prone children had lower nasal pro-inflammatory levels of interleukin-6, IL-10, tumor necrosis factor alpha and regulated on activation, normal T-cell expressed and secreted RANTES than non-otitis-prone children during viral URIs. Non-otitis-prone children had higher levels of IL-6, IL-10, interferon gamma, TNF-alpha, IL-1-beta, monocyte chemotractin protein 1, RANTES IL-2 and IL-17 during viral URIs versus acute otitis medias following the URIs when compared to otitis-prone children. So that's a lot of immunology, but let's just drill it down to the simplistic, what does it mean? The take-home point, in these susceptible children, the immune system doesn't develop adequate immunity based on exposure or even repeated exposure. This leads to repeated infections of the ears and lungs, putting the child at risk for an abnormal microbiome and lots of downstream problems, of which autoimmunity is one of the ones I worry about the most. These results are very similar to other infections like SARS-2 and flu, whereby some people get repeatedly infected while others never do. The variability of the human immune response is vast. What these authors do not discuss is what are the reasons for the poor responses. I submit that I suspect that human behaviors are driving much of this immune weakness as we have seen with COVID disease burden. Many of the lifestyle choices that we have discussed ad nauseum in this newsletter are likely at play, including diet, sleep, stress, toxin exposure, and much more, as each of these can affect immune activity, as has been shown in many, many, many immunological articles in the, in the scientific literature. The next big issue is the damaged lung and intestinal microbiome following these infections and subsequent antibiotic exposures is something of major concern for me as the long downstream risk of this as stated is autoimmune disease, potentially increased cancers, potentially increased problems with obesity and metabolic syndrome, and on and on. From a Nature article in by Mann, we have the answer that says, the respiratory tract is a complex organ system that is responsible for the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. The human respiratory tract spans from the nostrils to the lung alveoli and is inhabited by niche-specific communities of bacteria. The microbiota of the respiratory tract probably acts as a gatekeeper that provides resistance to colonization by respiratory pathogens. The respiratory microbiota might also be involved in the maturation and maintenance of homeostasis of respiratory physiology and immunity. The picture that I talked about earlier up above has a nice pictorial view of the upstream risk factors for an unstable microbiome. We noted by uh, Dr. Picicero stating also that children prone to infections are also at increased risk for asthma issues. His group noted that the children that had the earliest colonization with bacterial pathogens had the lowest microbial diversity in the lung microbiome. Increased biodiversity in any human locale is highly correlated with health in that region. For humans, it is incumbent upon us to avoid all things in nature or culture that disrupt the microbiome anywhere in our body. 
this is just becoming more and more and more critical the more research that I read. So again, I'm bringing this to you from a global perspective. You can skip over the immunology. That's the stuff that makes me very excited. But if you just look at it from the global perspective, we need to hit on all the immunological modification factors of lifestyle to improve our outcome risk to the best possible, knowing that we may have genetic weaknesses in innate and adaptive immunity. It's the bottom line. Section two, snakes. So it's that time of year again. Snakes are coming back out to play as temperatures are staying above 60 degrees repeatedly, you know, daytime and nighttime. I mean, we've been hitting hundreds lately, so snakes are out. One of my neighbors recently was bitten in the toe by a copperhead. And so it's very frustrating reality that although very rare, these creatures are a pain when they come near us and cause us harm. You know, when I first looked at this topic back in 2015, we, we, we looked at how snakes were relatively common in habit in the United States with potential risks associated with unintended exposures. Snakes are truly an uncommon cause of human injury overall but young boys and men are the most likely to be bitten and sustain trauma based on their risk behavior, risky behavior, which includes trying to catch the snake when they get near it or find it. Most of the accidental issues are when you come upon the snake and step on it or are so close it gets scared and lashes out. Otherwise, snakes don't want to be messed with. They really, really, really want you to leave them alone. They know you're much bigger than them and have no value in biting you. North Carolina, unfortunately, often leads the United States in the cases of venomous snake bites. Right? And I happen to live in North Carolina, so we have a lot of risk, comparatively. The most, common venomous snake, the most common venomous snake in North Carolina is the copperhead, and it is found in every single county. Other venomous snakes include the cottonmouth, otherwise known as a water moccasin, three distinct rattlesnake types called the pygmy, the eastern, and the timber, and also the coral snake. The other snakes are found more commonly in the coastal areas and the mountains, where the Rattlesnakes being found in the mountains mostly and the cottonmouth water moccasin and the coral snake being found closer to the ocean and the shores and the, and the boggy areas. Bites usually occur when a barefooted person stumbles upon a snake and startles it into action or when we attempt to play with or kill a snake. As I stated earlier, that's something that boys and men tend to do. Can't say as I'm not one. I tried to catch many a snake, but most time when I try and catch them, they are ones that I know are not poisonous. Some snakes warn us of their presence by shaking a rattle, although human selection is killing the rattlesnakes that have loud rattles. And the quieter brethren now are procreating when they are left alone to survive, so the rattle's not becoming as important to help warn us off. Many snake bites are dry strikes without envenomation. When the venom is introduced into the skin, the area will swell and become painful. Death is exceedingly rare nationwide with only 10 deaths per year in the whole country. Just remember, folks, snakes are part of the ecosystem. They are good creatures. They are generally not aggressive towards us. But we got to be careful when you walk on trails, watch for relaxing snakes. I was mountain biking a few years ago in Davidson and was going down a trail. And there right in the middle of the road was a big four foot, very large in the girth copperhead staring at me. <laughs> Almost fell off my bike, but you know, is what it is. He was there. So stopped, went around him. He didn't bother me and he slithered on. Stay out of the tall grass where possible and wear boots when hiking and preferably lace them up and also put long pants around them. That also adds the added protection of ticks, which is another huge problem. All right, let's say you do get bitten. What do you want to do? What are our action steps? 
Number one, remain calm. Leave the area where the snake resides and have someone call 911 or poison control. Do not try and capture the snake. The less the victim moves, the less likely the venom will be spread throughout the body, causing damage to tissues by movement through circulation. Two, have the victim lie down with the affected limb at the level of the heart. Keep the limb immobilized. Three, remove any rings, bracelets, boots, or other restricting items from the bitten extremity as the area will swell. Four, wash the bite with soap and water. Actions to avoid. These are a lot of the myths of the old days. Do not cut the bite. The additional tissue damage may actually increase the diffusion of the toxin throughout the body and surely makes the immune system mad, bringing more immune cells to the area, which will cause more inflammation and dysfunction. Two, do not apply a tourniquet. Such action can result in the loss of the limb. I think that's a really good idea not to apply a tourniquet then. Losing a limb would be a bad idea. Three, never try and suck out the venom by mouth. You can try the suction cup in a snake bite kit if it doesn't delay other needed treatment. Suctioning seldom provides any measurable advantages though, so probably not worth it. Four, do not apply cold and or ice packs. Recent studies indicate that application of cold or ice makes the injury worse. All this being said, my final statement here is that snakes are a beautiful part of our natural ecosystem. They keep troublemakers away, like mice, rats, different creatures that can actually cause other problems. And again, it's an ecosystem. They need to be going against each other for control of normalcy. Biodiversity is key. Try not to kill snakes out of fear. Preferably just walk away. Don't be once bitten, twice shy. There's a lot of links in the newsletter if you go to SalisburyPediatrics.com from this one. If you just go to Health and Wellness tab and go to the search engine and click in snakes, it'll pop up and you can have links to Herpetology of North Carolina, North Carolina Wildlife, NC State, CDC Snake, a bunch of the different articles as well. Section three, two decades of child development research tells us that small kids need two things above all else to get off to the best possible start in life. One, nurturing interaction with caregivers and two, protection from toxic stress. Over the past five years, a new wave of neuroscientific studies highlighting the neurobiological effects of early experience has strongly pointed towards ways of accomplishing these goals. Such research provides an early peek at what is happening in young children's brains. The studies show that environments and relationships we know benefit development are also associated with higher levels of activation and connectivity in parts of the brain that underpin language and cognitive development. Dr. Suskind is a pediatric physician and early learning researcher who has been tracking the way emerging science on brain development can inform not just what we do as parents, but as a society. For instance, paid leave gives gives parents time to develop nurturing relationships. Child allowances and tax credits can alleviate the poverty known to be detrimental to development. When parents work outside the home, as a considerable majority of American mothers and fathers do now, and sometimes must, access to quality child care provides young children with responsive, engaged caregivers. There's an article by Suskind et al. in 2022 that you can get that information. Folks, these social concerns are not going away. As we see mental health issues worsen and increased gun violence against school children and so many more groups, we must take stock in the reality that we are a great and prospering society that has lost its way regarding our youth development and mental health safety nets. Raising a child does take a village. We have always known this. When are we going to invest in children above wars? 
mental health and nutritional health should be at the forefront of the political discussion. This is not a political issue for me personally. I don't care which side of the aisle you are on. I care that we tackle this issue politically, i.e. both groups get together and make sure that kids are taken care of. I believe that from zero to 21, all children should have access to clear, good quality education, clean water and food, and a health system that is provided for them regardless of any sense of their wealth. I think Medicaid as a government entity should be stripped out from adults and should be zero to 18 year olds. End of story. We could even parse the question of should they go to 21, but it should be a designated reality that kids should have no question whether they get the best of everything. I don't understand why we wouldn't want that. This generation becomes our next generation, which if they're taken care of from the beginning, are less likely to have mental health issues, are less likely to have disease problems, and less likely to be bad parts of society, which then downstream saves a ton of money. My rant for the day. So I hope you enjoyed today's AudioCast newsletter. As always, I'm your host, Dr. M. This was issue number 24 of volume 12. And as always, hug those kids. Have a great day. For the disclaimer, the information provided in this audiocast newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Take care.